Hi, everyone. You're listening to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. Bushwick Junction is a show about life's inflection points hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate, or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We start with birth, we fast forward through the first big decision, and map out the road their lives have taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. With that, I will introduce today's guest. Maria Chavez is an experimental sound artist, a conceptual sound artist. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Thank studio, you. Maria. Thank you for having me. So I met Maria seeing her perform an, an art piece, a sound art piece in on this like 40 speaker stereo channel. Was it how many? It was 40 speakers. Yeah, it was the and craziest setup. Yeah, it was great. And that future space. I'm sure that you experienced something similar to what I just experienced where you're like, oh, I've never dealt with this particular challenge before. Because you were in that space for kind of the first time, right? Well, I had spent time there the day before just to hear it um, and also just to make decisions if I wanted to be in charge of deciding the spatial configuration of the speakers as I was performing or if I was going to let Dave and Gabe, who curated the event, um, if I was going to let them be in charge of it since it's their their space. Right. So I did. I did have that. That I did want to have some spy, some some time there to 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 just f- feel myself out within it and see how much responsibility I wanted to give myself in a new space. And I have worked in these speaker configurations before, actually larger, from fifty speakers to one hundred and forty. So this, as far as performance practice is concerned, it's not new. But every room is different, every configuration is different, and so I decided to let them take over the role of spatializing the sound live for you guys because they work in that room they set up the space they know what they like to hear they know the sweet spots so I felt like giving them the responsibility made the most sense knowing where you need to seed control another huge part of <laughs> being a good artist or a good creative person delegating yes. which is very hard to do <laughs> totally yeah. so before we dive into it I just would love to give my listeners and your listeners uh, a brief description of your work in your words sure um well um mind. I guess I'm known as a an abstract turntablist uh, I use the turntable as a tool to create abstract vibration sculpture formations that are normally performed live in front of an audience. I don't practice in a studio. Every technique I've developed from precarious situations on one turntable with broken needles and uh, records have conspired to create different um, techniques that have evolved into a book called Of Technique, Chance Procedures on Turntable that I released in 2012. Um, and since then, I've been teaching regularly all over the world, uh, tr- abstract turntablism workshops, workshops on spatial sound, sound art uh, theory practice, improvisation practice. Uh, and then 
I'm also a professional DJ and through my sound art practice as an exhibiting artist with museums and galleries, I present a large body of work, whether it's my latest solo show at the Harnett Museum of Art was a painting show about um, the topography of vinyl and needle uh, through the lens of landscape portraiture painting. And uh, before that, I turned a, a large warehouse gallery in Austin, Texas into a gigantic string instrument for the city of Austin to perform. So every show is different. Everything is I do is different. That was a really beautiful, that I was very, very happy with that installation. And I got a lot of really bad reviews and I'm, I'm very glad for it. It was, it was important that the reviews were bad because it showed how shorts, uh, the, the short attention span of the public. Oh, interesting. And, and then from that, People would read it and then go, and then suddenly it became something else entirely. And I, I, I thought that really proved that the piece worked. Like it was, it was actually a lot more than what the reviews were were saying it was. Yeah, because, because of- they, they, they were literally like one reviewer I know from my the director of the gallery was saying he was only there for five minutes. <laughs> wow! And I was just like, yeah, I mean that's that's fine if you're really familiar with this practice and and this type of implementation of sculpture, sonic sculpture. Uh, but at the same time, it, if you're just an art reviewer that doesn't have experience within the sound arts genre in general, to only spend five minutes there is really just to pluck a couple of things, be like, oh, it didn't work. And to leave. have gone into yeah. the room with an idea about what you wanted to, what you wanted what you to think be, about which is, that, that's entertainment. That's not conceptual mm. art practice. And so those people actually shouldn't be writing reviews for art <laughs> columns in the first place. I hear that. Yeah. Um, I we usually don't talk this much about right now at the, on the show before we talk about you being born, like I mentioned, but I right. just think it's really fascinating. So sound is like our, our, one of our five senses, obviously. And then you've really gone down this conceptual path with that sense mm-hmm. and kind of developed this entire practice that's really specific and then also made this big career out of it. Uh, I think that's so cool. And just you. hearing you speak about your work at the uh, multi-channel speaker event kind of like reoriented me toward toward sound. You said something about uh, the harshness of the city sounds in the piece that you played for us, and mm-hmm. someone the, in the, the audience was like, "Why does it? Why would? Why did it sound so bad?" And you're like, "Maybe we don't label that sound bad." And you think about why you think that sounds bad, and I was just like, my brain exploded. <laughs> yeah, because it's it, what is bad. Right. What, what what does that mean? And, yeah. and I think if you want to start from the point of being born, I think there's a flaw when you're born cuz a lot of a lot of children or a lot of individuals that are born are born with hearing intact. So when I was born, I was born with water in my ears. So for the first 2 years of my life, I couldn't hear. Wow. Um but they didn't know cuz I was in Peru and Lima at the time and they thought I was mentally disabled or a mute. Wow. And then my mother uh, immigrated to America with my brother and me. And the first thing she did, because she was accepted into a master's program at the University of Texas for accounting. And at the time, I don't know why they don't still do this. Maybe they do. I'm just not familiar. But at the time at UT, if you were a master's or PhD student 
in the program, you had free access to the UT Medical Center for the doctors. And so she immediately took me there. And then they were like, oh, she's got water in her ears. And they took it out. So I heard my first sound when I was three. Wow. So wow. I have a, and it's my first memory. So I have a very distinct divider. Yeah. I don't have any memory before that sound. Um, but my father says that when he would speak to me, I would I would recognize him. Mm-hmm. So he thinks I could hear really low tones. Right. But we just didn't or they just didn't know at the time if I could even hear at all. So it was really hard to tell like, oh, she can hear that or this. But he was he was always convinced that I could hear him. So um, when when we came to America and then I, they figured it out, um, it, I learned to speak within the year. Wow. But I still had to go to a special school for um, for children with special needs mm. because they weren't sure how much damage had right. happened to my brain because I lost the first two, two most important developmental years sonically for right. a brain. And language And language yeah. and everything. So that's why I don't speak Spanish fluently. Uh, my family, we don't speak Spanish to each other because we were all learning English together. Mm. And now really the only time my mother speaks Spanish to us is when she's in trouble or when we're in trouble. And, and that's normally like the cue to like get out of the room. <laughs> like mom's yelling in Spanish, what did you do? Um, and but So I think that there is a, a real relationship between um, certain sounds that you have been born into, yeah. That then, it, when you put that on top of your choice of society or your family's choice of the society that's surrounding you, and then what that society chooses its media to be played around in the background of it, and the stories that you purchase, being TV shows, movies, because that's ultimately what entertainment is, right? It's just the business of storytelling, mm-hmm. even even radio. Yeah, we're doing it right now. You know, um, pop music is Radio just, Free Brooklyn's a nonprofit. Nonprofit, There's no business. <laughs> <laughs> but still, the the process yeah. of of exchanging, communicating, and I mean, ultimately, that's what a pop song is. Is they want it to be as personal as possible for the individual to attach to it for so as many people as possible. For as many people as possible, it's it's really it's it's a way of manipulating your your mind with uh, tones and nostalgia, absolutely, and and controlling you and. Um, I think I think I understood that pretty quickly by the time I was a like a teenager. I I when everyone else would go crazy about a trend, I, I would just be like I would always be left out. Like I don't understand what this is. Hmm. And I've always I've always felt that way. Like I just I, I always saw it for the bigger picture than what everyone else was digesting it as. And I think that's what set me apart into me being an artist now. So that definitely speaks to me as like a personality trait, something that, you know, you are willing to go against the grain of people your age. And that definitely is not entirely related to sound. But do you also think that because you lost a couple years of sound early on that you had this sort of like otherworldly sense about what sounds were being used by mass media? I don't. You were like, oh, I don't have that same nostalgia thread. So it doesn't doesn't like get me the way it gets you. I, yeah, I definitely feel as if there is a detachment. Um, as far as the significance of it, I can't I can't really tell if it's a choice or if it's natural mm. from from my background. Um, and I, I really hate to be too romantic about it because it was just chance. Like, yeah. it, it wasn't something that was meant for me to become. Like, it's nothing this romantic to me because I don't believe in fate. I'm an atheist, so I don't believe in fate or 
you know, meant to be or astrology. I, I feel like we, we are what our choices um, bring us to. And however that manifests is based on our self-initiative and what we want to see in the physical world. Um, and I think ultimately, in a way, I'm very lucky that I chose to be a sound artist with this kind of a background. Um, but to say, like, I was meant to be a sound artist because of this kind of background, I'm, I'm very hesitant to do because I, I don't know if romanticizing a, a chance health yeah. issue is, is, um, is honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you on that. And, uh, romanticization, fate, things like that are, I think, something kind of privileged people invent to make themselves feel like well, they deserve the things they've gotten or something. Well, it's but, 20th century yeah, storytelling very, thought. Capital it's R very, romantic. It's, it's very old, yeah. Like the romanticizing of the artist and mm. this bohemianness, and yeah. even if they're bad people, well, they're, but their work is, you know, like... They're a singular soul. Yeah. Right, and the 21st century is a different time where we're supposed to be redefining history and redefining what all of our roles are within it and having the courage to do so in order to create a more finite and clearer history for the future to understand in a, in a more equal way. Fascinating. So this post-romantic, post-modern take that you have, that we are the sum of our choices, mm-hmm. is exactly what the show is an, exploration <laughs> yeah. of, is, is an exploration of. So I'm so glad that you're here. And on that note, let's talk about your choices and where they've led you and what they've manifested. So in childhood... I guess the, the the next question, since you've told me how you were born in the wild circumstance that is the through line between really these wild. things. <laughs> really um, wild. Do you remember the first big decision you made that felt like an individuating moment? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say, well, I guess I, I'm still grappling with it, how this choice really falls in line with my with my practice because I was so young, but um, at the time I was asking my mother when I was around nine if I could take piano lessons. Mm. Not because I wanted to learn music, but because I was obsessed with Beethoven's Furalise. Wow. And I really wanted to see if I could play it. Huh. But my mom understood it as I want to learn the piano. But I was like, in my mind, I was like, no, I I just want to know how I can play this song. And so I even brought it the first day to the piano teacher, like, okay, I want to learn this. She's like, no, no, we can't, we can't do that. We have to learn all the other things first. And then every day I would learn that now, now, no, no. And then finally I just wore her down and like six months in, she's like, okay, fine. We'll, 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 let's see if you can do it. And so then my goal in my head was if I can play the first page and a half all the way through, then I'm good. Then I know I can do it. Wow. And so every day, because we had a piano in my house, like every day, like messing up and then going over it over and over again, not even caring about doing any of the exercises or, you know, that you're supposed to do with the chords. And then finally, I went in like a month or two later, set it in, played it two pages through without messing up and then stopped closed it and I was like okay thank you and I like just left and I walked out and my mom was waiting I was like okay I'm ready to go she's like but your lesson isn't over I was like no but I played it so I'm finished <laughs> and she was just like no and the teacher was like what like wait where are you going and I'm like no I'm done I didn't she's like but you're not le- done learning piano I was like I didn't 
want to learn uh-huh. piano. I just wanted to see if I could do this. And I, and they were just stunned. And my mom talks about it to this day. She's like, I didn't really know what to make of you or what, <laughs> or what this all was for. And I was like, well, that's just the way I am. Like anything that I find that piques my curiosity, I want to go in there and just see if I can do it. And then if I can, and I can show that I can do it, then it's like, okay, well, then I know that's there. I can do that. And and I think it shows in my la- my latest solo exhibition at the Harnett Museum of Art, which was this painting show, which I don't paint, and I I I don't I just I, I don't practice painting. Uh-huh. I don't do this, but it was more of a gesture to the sound art community as a conceptual practice, as a piece, um, to say that sound art doesn't have to just be emitted sound from speaker configurations in one space. Right. It doesn't have to be all about emitted sound. Sound art is a conceptual practice in all of the forms of how sound can be illustrated in different ways. And so then I chose to put myself at risk by doing a painting show, even though I never paint, and seeing if I could make these gigantic paintings that are like nine feet by 11 feet um, and, and see if I could pull it off. And and I did. And so I feel like my my first memory of of taking that kind of risk was when I was nine and trying to learn for Elise. That's so interesting. That's such an interesting theme. So I have two sort of questions leading off of that topic. Mm-hmm. One is, have you ever not been able to pull something off? Have you ever oh, of dove course. into a thought <laughs> experiment just, just to see if I can do it and been like, oh, no, I can't do it. Graphic design, I'm really bad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but you no wanted eyes. to be good at it. For I a tried, yeah. When I was a DJ and I was trying to make the flyers and mm. things, and uh, it was always a disaster. I just don't have the the eye for that. It's very specific. I get that. With, yeah. with like language placement or letter placement and topography and things. It's very, very, it's very detailed. And I feel like I'm a little bit more of an overview, bird's eye view person, more so than a detailed yeah. person so um that was hard to accept but now I just let everyone else do it for me so that I don't have to embarrass myself <laughs> I think that you know I think we're gifted with you know sight attuneness or sound attuneness or some people are gifted with both but sure I feel like there's definitely a little bit of a trade-off yeah um and then my second question is have you ever dabbled in something just to see if you could do it that's led to something bigger and more important and with more longevity in your life. So did you end up playing more piano after that? No, no, definitely not. I mean, I'll, I'll improvise on a piano. Mm. And I used to improvise as a child on the piano because we had it when I was learning. And then right. my mom was like, but we bought you a piano. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll still use it. I just won't, you know, it won't be used for what it's. And normally it was when everybody was gone and I would be alone and I would just wail on it and you know, just improvise. That's incredible. Um, but same question for other things. Like was sound art, for example, just something you tried once to see? That that definitely was all because of David Dove, who was my first mentor. He's an abstract trombonist and the founding director for the Pauline Oliveros Foundation in Houston. And I wanted to be an intern in his foundation. And um, he said, well, you have to take an improvisation class. And I was a DJ at the time, but I was getting out of the DJ scene because they were pushing me out. They didn't like me being around. And it was the late 90s. Hmm. And the boys were even worse then. They're bad now, but they were even yeah. worse then. Um, it's, a nice, it's actually a much better time now than it used to be. But um, So I was frantically searching for a new scene to just 
dive into and I, and I was really curious about the avant-garde but didn't really understand it because it was so avant-garde um, and so I told Dave I was like well I don't play an instrument I'm a DJ he's like well bring a turntable hmm. and let's see what happens and then that became my career that's fascinating yeah and I, I thank him I really owe him a lot for that for, for having that insight so early on that was 2001 yeah this is kind of so that's not that was not his medium obviously that he no. worked in he was a trombonist so this well but he was aware at the time that what of information I wasn't, which was Christian Marclay, John Cage's uh, broken record uh, mm. pieces, and uh, and of course music concrete and and Marina Rosenfeld and other people. So he he clearly already knew it existed. I just didn't know. Was and aware that people were doing this. That and yeah was able to tell you. Got yeah, it. and then I was really clear with myself the first two years of developing my practice with the turntable where I. When everyone was like, oh, have you heard of Otomo Yoshihide, Christian Markle? I'm like, no, and I'm going to wait before I hear them to decide. Like, And, and I waited two or three years, and then finally, um, at once my vocabulary, I felt really comfortable with my work. Um, then I was willing to hear what they all were doing. And everyone does something completely different. Otomo is totally punk. Christian is really clean and elegant. Marina's still very hip hop background, but with new music twangs into it. Like everyone has their own approach. Um, Ignaz is very, Ignaz Schick is very, um, electroacoustic. He doesn't use records at all. Martin Tertot builds his own turntables. So then each turntable has its own mm. sonic characteristics. So, so it's important for you <laughs> to build your. My own language. Yeah. So your own signature right before ingesting what everyone in your space was doing because i didn't i didn't want to be influenced by anyone that's great what was the feeling like so when you first started this in that first year well well the first time that you improvised obsessed immediately obsessed you just knew right away as soon as it started i had this crazy out-of-body experience wow can you describe it it was it was pretty simple i mean it I was in a room improvising with some other young improvisers, uh, guitar, electric guitar, upright bass, and some percussive people, and then me on one turntable. And I had this experience where my body like was just looking over me mm. and looking over my hands. And I was doing all of this stuff that a DJ would never do. But I was finally, I finally had the space where I could do it because I'd always wanted to try, but if it was my boyfriend's equipment, he would kill me (laughs) I didn't want to didn't want to get in trouble whereas here I was in a safe space and I could really just throw a needle across and see what it sounded like and and I improvised with Dave for a short piece and we improvised together I heard him clearly I made my choices honestly my placement was as honest as I could make it for the time being an inexperienced improviser and and the thing that I'll never forget was I distinctly remember hearing a moment where something inside of me was like, it's going to end now. And this is how it ends. This is how these things end. And then it just finished. And then suddenly I was back in my body and I like looked around and everyone had this huge smile on their faces. My friend Lucas like was laughing so hard and he was just like, we got her. We got her. Like Uh she's in. (laughs) And we, we, and then as a group, we were improvising four to five times a week for four years. Wow. Practicing Pauline Oliveros' deep listening practices, sonic meditations, just, 
and, and playing shows and booking shows and playing and hosting uh, famous improvisers and free jazz performers. And so as soon as it started, I was just like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. This is what everyone told me in the DJ world was wrong, but I knew something was here and mm. I found it. And so what, as soon as I found it, I quit DJing altogether and only focused on this until 2010. That's when the DJing stuff came back. Wow. I think that's important. That's like a kernel to take away from this is, I mean, your experience was finding the thing that you were going to be doing and that could sustain your interest for the next several decades. Uh, yeah, and, several decades. And yeah. to know in the first moment that you did it, that it was, and, and also the Nothing way you describe is- it is to have like a certain sense of authority, like a comfort like I know how this is supposed to go this is not confusing to me I get it even though I didn't get it right I totally I was like oh but this is it Mm. this was this is what it was that has been bothering me for the past three years in the techno bro scene where everything was so astringent and classified and if you mixed one style with another you were not a professional or you know, like there, there are all of these astringent rules. And especially if you were a girl, a slight train wreck, mm. you were out, like you were kicked off because you couldn't do it. And right. the boys had to, you know, like now they let you train wreck every now and then, you know, like, right. and you can still stay on for your, for your time slot. They used to kick you off your time slot, even if you were given a whole hour. So it was a very uh, traumatizing time to be working. Um, but I was also so young. I was 17, 18, 19 oh, wow. years old, you know, um, when I got into this world, I was 21 gotcha. so, and, I, and I had already been playing professionally as a DJ since I was 17. So I was already being in front of people and traveling and like showing work and booking shows and things. So this was, this was really like a long time coming of me just struggling and struggling. And, and it, it was such a relief when it came. Can we go back? Can we fast forward a few years then and talk about your decision to start DJing and then skip to now and talk about your decision to start DJing again? Oh, How yeah. did you as a young person find that? Well, I was, I, for my 16th birthday, I went to a rave, my first rave. All my and high you were in Texas. In Texas and Houston. And in Houston in the mid 90s, the rave scene was huge. I'm sure. You would travel from Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana wow. to come to Houston because our raves were really big. And, um, and I was, I was trying to get on those big bills, even though, you know, n- now knowing <laughs> as old as I am, but I was really, I was really ambitious when, when it started. So, um, when, when I first went, I remember waiting in line. It was a really long line for like an hour. I was so frustrated. I was like, why are we just sitting here waiting? And I kept seeing these guys walking in with these crates of records, you know, getting, walking right in and finally like kind of stepped out of line just to see what they were doing. And they were just like walking straight in to go to their areas to play. And then when I finally got in, I went straight to the DJ booth just to see what they were doing. And then sat on a sofa for right next to the DJ for the rest of the night. Wow. And just listened to every DJ and was just like learning ultimately. And then my boyfriend was also at the time learning as well. And he had a setup at his house. And so that next week I was like, I want to learn. So we went to a record store. I bought some records that I liked. And then we went back to his place and we both learned how to beat match by ear together uh, with vinyl. And then from there, 
we just became obsessed with DJing and and then of course trying to play out and then my mother because she, I was going to raves all the time um I was begging her for my own DJ setup at my house so I didn't have to go to my mm-hmm. boyfriend's place uh, and so finally she agreed and got me a wonderful setup that I had for many years after that um and I, we had it in the living room, and then I would DJ in the living room, and my brother would dance. Or he'd have friends over, and I would Aww. throw mini parties in our in our house. So the family was so supportive. Very supportive. My, my mom was harder on me when I was in my twenties because I think she thought at the time like she's a kid, just give her what she needs. This is a to hobby, learn. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, it became a real thing. <laughs> when was your mindset shifted to oh, this is a hobby I'm doing as a kid to oh, this is how I what I want to spend my life doing I never had I always just I was like I want to do that wow as soon as I saw it I was like this is that's I belong on this side of the table not that side Mm. and then when it's when it ended I was very sad because I love DJing it's one of my most favorite things to do and I took I, I, I really thought it was done I really thought I was finished with it when the turntablism came about and then I didn't start up again until 2010 let's talk about that yeah I had a. I was part of a group exhibition at the House for Elektronische Künste in Basel, in Switzerland, um, and I was presenting a turntable sculpture video projection installation for this group exhibition. And they ordered a turntable for me to perform. They wanted me to do my turntables and stuff, but the order got mixed up, and they gave the museum the full DJ setup. And then the curator, the day of the opening, when, you know, we're cleaning up all the loose ends of the exhibition, you know, uh-huh. she's like, I forgot to hire a DJ. <laughs> and everyone's just scrambling, like calling people. And I'm just kind of standing there, just looking. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and What's I, going through your head? I, I, you know, I don't really remember what, what exactly happened. All I remember was just like, I can do it. <laughs> and everyone just looked at me like, really? I'm like, yeah, I used to be a DJ. And. I still collect music as if I am a DJ, just don't play, you know. Well, I didn't say that part, but in my mind, yeah. I was like, I just don't play out professionally anymore. And so they just gave me the full DJ setup, and I ended up DJing and performing that whole night. And it ended up being an awesome party and really fun. And, and suddenly the DJing was back, and it was just like, oh my gosh, it's back, it's here, it's with me, and I can finally be in my element again and in this space that I've always I've always wanted to be in I just was being held back by so many individuals that didn't want me to do well so fascinating and this is this is a story involving chance everything is (laughs) my entire life this is is a story involving a combination of chance and you um you stepping up to the plate I guess yeah, um, ultimately just, just taking the responsibility, just taking the role, self-initiative again. So what turning points has your work seen since you got into the avant-garde scene? I mean, it's completely changed my view on how I function within industry, whether it be in the arts or in the music industry. I haven't released an album since 2004, and yet I tour and have just as much visibility as a musician that only tours to promote albums. Mm. Um, and same with the art industry, the art contemporary art market. Um, I have work in permanent collections and art museums, but I never had a contemporary art gallery represent my work, which is normally what the role of a contemporary art gallery is, to 
support your work, give you solo shows, so institutions will want to purchase it or individuals and patrons will want to purchase your your work. Right. And I completely skipped that too. So I think I think ultimately my my career has evolved into this understanding that I'm I don't follow any kind of role, even with through academia as well. I'm a college dropout. I dropped out junior year in art history. I wasn't even in art school. Um, I got a two-year technical degree of audio engineering just to get a degree because my mom was so frustrated with me when I mm-hmm. dropped out. Um, but I still find myself in academia and universities teaching all over the world all the time. Um, and so in a way, now I'm skipping over the academia process because now I have potential for if I I'm writing a, another book now it's much bigger about the history of the turntable through each mechanical part wow. and um, that book has potential to become a PhD dissertation if I want to submit that into a university should, should it be accepted of course but um, there are a few universities that have expressed interest because um, you can do a PhD through publication so then I would also skip that whole thing too. So I think that's pretty much the role for a younger artist too, to see me as like, don't believe this New York idealism where you have to go to all these art openings and be trendy and have your art look a certain way to be represented by blah. Like do it how you want. Just be smart about how you want your work to be shown. It sounds like the driving force has been just following what fascinates you, following what you're curious about and never bothering with anything that didn't fall into that category or recognizing when people are saying i want you to be in this category Mm. that i'm i'm doing everything opposite to not to not be in that say more about that recognizing when people want you in their world Mm -hmm. uh well i guess the best example would be a curator like this my latest solo show i think is the best example right now Mm -hmm. she had she took a lot of risk because she wanted a sound emitting speaker installation show that's what she was coming in for a studio visit she wanted me to give me a solo show dealing with speakers and sound and you know being this whole thing and I was telling her I don't I don't want to make work like that anymore I'm so bored with emitted sound I'm so bored with myself and what's being emitted from me to the audience I already do that so much Mm -hmm. that to me isn't art that's simply performance practice and to be in an exhibition space and to challenge the sound art um, the conceptual realm within sound art, I feel it's necessary to make a painting show. And I, it took a while to convince Elizabeth, but she, she was, she, she was open from the get go. I'm going to be super fair with her because she was. And finally, like, she was like, well, can we have some sound? And so we, we agreed on, um, iPads with, videos past videos of my workshops oh. and performances and headphones so then you could put headphones on and and watch old uh, workshops and performances of mine gotcha um and that was our that was our meeting point for having sound in the show um and i and i really appreciated her being so flexible with her vision to allow mine to be the proper the proper manifestation of what it what it became because what she said in an interview um, that came out after the show was sound was still the leading line. It was still the, it was still the thing that swept everything together. It was just that you were walking into a silent show, which then made it more, made sound more prominent somehow, but in the Mm. mind, which was the point is to mess with the mind, to deal with the inner ear and to change the mind 
to me the exhibition was in was was actually meant to the exhibition itself in the in the museum was secondary to when I would tell you oh you would ask me what's your solo show about and I'd say it's a painting show and you're like oh, but you're a sound artist I didn't know you could paint mm-hmm. that's the show is that flip I didn't huh. know you could paint I didn't know sound art could be a painting show I didn't know this could happen that flip is the show so then the painting show the if the paintings were good or bad didn't matter anymore because it didn't it didn't it it wasn't really the point the point was to hit everyone's mind and make them all flip yeah you and that's the direction that my work is going now it's getting more and more in the mind of dealing with installations dealing with the inner ear silent sound installation right i'm just not really interested in participating in what the contemporary art market continues to try to push into these corners so silence as sound and yeah again just doing exactly what you're interested in skipping what you're bored with and and not falling for the trends for the desperation of attention for the desperation of receiving things hmm. and not being not seeing it as competition or being jealous of others forgetting things or and, and i feel very detached from all of that i always have but much more now than i was when i was young was it harder when you were younger to not get jealous of course feel? has there been an active practice that's led you away from that or is it just happened over time that's just happened over time i think i think that's your attitude when you're young a lot of my younger friends are in that space right now and i know there's no way to pop them out of it like they're going to either grow out of it or they're going to self-sabotage and Stay not be in the scene in it forever yeah well they'll be stuck in it but then they'll be doing other things they won't be doing the, but that's part of the filtration process of being in the arts some people can handle it and manage it and maintain their mental health within it and mm. from that they can present and have a real presence in it and some people can't and then they'll just disappear that happens yeah and you see i see i've seen so many cycles of people some were really famous and now you don't even remember their names anymore it's five to seven years the cycle wow yeah because or you, because they fell in the loop they, they fell in the industry loop of thinking in this way and it's very dangerous I feel. Right. but there's nothing you can say you can only just watch them and just hope do you think that's true for musicians too everyone everyone that wants to create um their own economy from their own ideas so which when is you being an artist or a musician think about a long term like an, ar- an artist or musician whose career has spanned decades like mm-hmm. someone we've all heard of i don't know do you feel that that the key to that uh, is some some combination of being, uh, I guess, being comfortable with the cycle of trendiness or diverging from it completely and disassociating yourself from it. I think it, it's recognizing it as its own thing, hmm. and and recognizing that the true separation between it is 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 healthy and it's not necessarily making you any more unique than anyone else it's really more just giving you more space to have mental health positive mental health practice for you to continue to focus because you can really fall down a bad hole i mean plenty of people have yeah um and it, it is a very especially because you are so dependent on your own creativity to create your own economy mm-hmm. i mean that's no small feat um, and our capitalist structure, especially here in America, is not meant for that. They already built the structures for us to work for so that we don't make our own economies. 
you know, that's the selling point of working for people so that you have your salary and you have your this and that. And so it's already, it's already really dangerous to think this way, just in this type of a, in this type of a society. And so I think just recognizing that these are all just roles, like recognizing that music industry, movie industry, entertainment industry in general is just storytelling. It's not that important and it shouldn't be something that kills you. But if it's something that matters to you, it should be something that if if you really care about it, you're you're going to do what's right to make it happen. There should be no question. And if there's people that are like, well, why aren't I more famous than you? My first question is, why are you here? Like, yeah. why aren't you? What about all your projects? Like a lot of my old friends that are artists, but by hobby now because they have jobs they're like why why do you get to be more famous than me i'm like well because i'm still there (laughs) like i'm still in new york touring my ass off and making i mean every day i wake up i'm making something new i'm doing something new there's no there's no end to it yeah but there's also no goal either right why are you here i love that as a kind of statement of finality there should be no question i feel like that ties together this theme and the theme of uh your knowing immediately the first time you uh, improvised on a turntable, just there should be no question. There shouldn't be any doubt. There shouldn't be any, uh, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? There's, well, there should be trust in your instinct. Yeah. It's really a language with chance. That's that's what I call it. And I wrote about it in my book. Is There's a language with chance where you start to develop a relationship with the moment and you start to really understand your stomach and your gut so that one time you're about to leave the house and you're like, oh, I need to go back and do this really fast. And then when your mind is like, oh, no, you can do it later. That's that's that moment, that language of chance where it's like, OK, do I listen to my gut or do I go with my head? Normally, I'll go back in and do it. And then, of course, it, it saves me because I could have locked myself out, you know, something like that. Whatever so, it is, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's very it's very it's a very nuanced practice. Like you really have to be aware. And I think being an artist and putting myself in these positions of performance in front of large audiences where you're expected with lots of tension to like make something and you know, like mm. I think that has really honed my ability to be so um in sync with my instincts. That's so fascinating. And as you know, this show is a decision or a, an exploration of how to better make decisions. And I think that's a really concrete thesis, like put yourself in situations where you're constantly forced to make tiny micro decisions as a means of honing your relationship right. with your instincts. And also with yourself, like getting to know yourself mm-hmm. and what you're capable of. That's the only reason why I've gotten as far as I have. That's because incredible. I wasn't really sure what I was capable of. And now I know the you know, the sky's the limit. I can do whatever I want. Wow. But there was there was a point where I couldn't, you know, I had to get there. That's a beautiful note to end on. Uh, and a really incredible, yeah, a really incredible answer to the driving question behind this show. So thank you so much for coming in. Before we go, I want to promote some stuff that Maria has going oh, on yeah. right now. So I have a lot of shows this month, guys. I'm in New York. I leave again for tour mid-September. I'm in and out. And then once November hits, I'm gone for the rest of the year. I'm very heartbroken, but I'm trying to play as many shows here in the city before I have to go. So, so. for a list of your shows, your Facebook fan page is good. Yeah. Maria Chavez Sound. I'm going to be playing some stuff as we uh, tune out for Maria's SoundCloud, which is her name also. Mm-hmm. Um, you can Google my name, DJ. put DJ at the end and everything will pop up. 
Everything will pop up. Do you have any fun DJ gigs to tell us Thursday about? at Jupiter Disco. Oh, love that place. So That's really exciting. With Richard Gamble, PH and Bergenus is going to be tight and it's free all night long, 10 to 4. Um, and then I'm also hosting a barge event on this barge called Swale at the Brooklyn Army Terminal in Sunset Park on September 1st, Labor Day weekend, um, Saturday, September 1st. We'll be hosting on the barge DJs and sound and light installations throughout the barge. It's 31 feet long. It's a food forest. Uh, it's been sailing down from Hudson down to Sunset Park, and it's a food forest of trees and uh, plants, vegetation that um, feeds pollinating insects. So a lot of really cool pollinating insects are hovering around. They won't bite you, or maybe they will, but it's really fun. Um, so I highly recommend coming to Swale, supporting Swale. It's $10, five go to Swale, five go to the artists that are playing for you. And that starts at five and goes until um, midnight. That sounds so cool. It's New York amazing. is the best. I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you again so much for thank being you, here, Asha. Maria. You are such a cool guest. I have some other stuff to tell you guys about RFB. So first thing is we're trying to get a South by Southwest panel in 2019. We need help from you guys to upvote the panel. You can go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash South by Southwest, rather XS. XSW, the way you abbreviate South by Southwest, uh, and upvote our panel. Um, the other thing I want to tell you guys about is that we are proud to announce that we've been partially funded to start an after school program for local teenagers in 2019. Our grant will pay for part of it, and we have a long way to go to fundraise for the remaining part. Uh, to make that dream of educating youth on media liter media literacy a reality. Um, if you are able or willing to donate to that, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash after school. Uh, read more about it and donate whatever you can. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so each donation is tax deductible. Help some teens learn how to podcast. Doesn't that sound fun? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to play you out here with some of Maria's uh, mix, Fourth World 2K Team Parlor Mix on her SoundCloud. Go check it out. See you next week, guys. Bye.
Kamājās, kamājās, īstājās Kur sienas nesargās 